to begin tonight to preach again on the subject of marriage, would somebody please help me by reminding me of the location of that text that tells us whatever God's Word says regarding any subject, it is right and it is our obligation to hate everything else. Would someone help me? Psalm 119, we've got the right chapter. 128, we've got the right verse. Psalm 119, verse 128. In some ways, every practical sermon that a minister brings, this verse ought to be in front of his eyes. If we're truly to believe what the Bible teaches on any subject. And I love the attitude of the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wasn't a compromiser. He wasn't milk toast when it came to taking a position. Either it was right or it was wrong. If it was right, he loved it. If it was wrong, he hated it. And I like men like that. I hope to be a man like that. And I hope that all of you men and women want to be the same. Psalm 119, verse 128 tells us, Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Everything the Bible has to say about marriage, which would be one of the things that the Bible can deal with, all the precepts regarding the subject of marriage, we should esteem to be right if they come from God's Word. And if they come from God's Word, then we should hate everything that disagrees or counters them. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank thee that you've made it so easy for a minister by giving that simple charge from the, your beloved Apostle Paul when he said to Timothy, Preach the word. O oh Lord, I thank Thee for a word to preach. I thank Thee that all the efforts of psychologists, all the diggings of archaeologists, all the theorizing of philosophers can be ignored. And I might focus on one book that You have written that is able to make me perfect, truly furnished unto all good works and give me everything I need to instruct thy people in righteousness, to correct them, to feed them doctrine, and to reprove them. O Lord, bless us tonight as we open your word, looking at that most intimate, personal, practical relationship that we hold in this world, and that is with our husbands and wives. O Lord, grant that in this church there might be a revival in our marriages, that we might please thee more perfectly by faith, doing what your scriptures have commanded us. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and by thy spirit. Amen. Preach the word. Well, that makes it rather easy. If you've got time to study the word, the Bible does deal a great, at great length with the subject of marriage, and I'm thankful for that. We don't have to have a great deal of questions about how a marriage ought to run because the Bible tells wives what their responsibility is in a marriage, and the Bible tells husbands what their responsibility is. The Bible gives us the emphasis. The Bible tells us why marriage was ordained. 
And it's our obligation to read it, believe it, and practice it. I want to review very briefly what we covered last Sunday. I am now through completely for this point with the women. Last Sunday, I began of the, with the Bible's duties toward the husband. The first thing in this generation, or the first precept we must consider as men in our families is you have to be the leader in your home. If you fail there, it doesn't matter how much you so-called quote love and unquote. Love will be irrelevant if you're not the leader. Love will do no good if you're not the leader. You first must lead, then love. You have to be the head of your home. You have to establish the proper priority and order in your role as a husband. In this generation, in our society, and if Tuesday does not bear me out, I don't know what will. This past Tuesday, men are asked to come crawling before their wives. God never intended it that way. In our nation, all the benefits, all the rights, for the most part, go to the woman. So to talk about men compromising, men, and we'll get to that point, but to make that the primary emphasis of men giving, of men granting rights to women. That isn't the emphasis that we need. We need an emphasis against the fact that women are ruling today. Women and children rule in America at this hour. Isaiah chapter 3, as we read last Sunday evening, told us it would come, and it has come. Women and children are our oppressors. Maximizing a marriage requires first for you men to be the leader. Now, being a leader does not mean you are a tyrant. Being a leader means you are the head. Being a leader does not mean you are behind your wife, beating her and kicking her into obedience. Being a leader means you are in front of your wife, leading her. Can't you pick that up from the word? Or do we need to write it on a board this morning, leader? Take the base root word lead and define it that that means you are in front. You cannot force your wife to do many of the things that God expects you as a family to accomplish, but you can lead her there by example and by being there first and doing it yourselves. When it comes to your family devotions, when it comes to your relationship with her in communication, when it comes to how the finances are managed in the home. Are you the leader by example? Do you take the lead role in family devotions? Do you take the lead role in communicating effectively, properly, frequently with your wife? Do you take the lead role by example showing how the finances should be managed? Or do you end up yelling at her because she abuses or misuses the finances or doesn't communicate or doesn't train the children according to your wishes, and you blame her because you haven't done your job. Now, Adam was good at that. Remember Adam? Very good at blaming the woman for the fact that he ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A leader will be doing it himself, and his wife will follow. Women love leaders, but you've got to be a leader for a woman to love you as a leader. There is no question as to where the Bible places the emphasis in the home. It's on, first of all, being the ruler, 
being the leader in that home. Don't drive your wife to frustration by not taking charge in your kingdom. You men, understand, you men have worked for bosses that did not take charge. It is one of the most frustrating experiences you can ever have. He doesn't tell you what he wants you to do. He's not clear. He doesn't enforce his judgment. It's pitiful. You hate it. You want a man that will tell you what to do, rewards you if you do it well, and punish you if you do it poorly. And you know that if the man next to you doesn't pull his weight, he's going to be punished. It's a comfortable, secure feeling to have a strong leader. Women crave that and need it. God made them to need it. And you need to, first of all, be the leader in your home. Second of all, I want to point out that authority, your authority as a husband, is for the benefit of your wife. Now, that's an important concept. Uh, all authority is for the benefit of those in submission. God did not make kings, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I'll repeat myself to make the point. God did not make kings to recline on Roman couches and have beautiful women drop grapes in their mouths. That is not why God made kings. God made kings, according to Romans chapter 13, for the punishment of evildoers and to reward those that do good. Very simple. Kings are for the benefit of those under their authority to maintain some type of order and security in society at large. A, father, a husband is in authority in his family to maintain security, defense, protection, and orderly running of affairs for the home. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I mentioned several verses last Sunday. We went to Romans 13 to prove the point that authority is for the benefit of those under it. You say, I thought the man was the husband and was in charge for his own benefit. I thought the woman was made for the man. Oh, the woman was made for the man, but believe me, being in a position of authority as a husband is not a luxury. It is a responsibility. And that makes a great difference as to how you look at it. Being a husband is not being an authority for your own benefit. Being a husband is being an authority for her benefit. And it's an obligation. It is not a luxury. It is not so much a privilege. It is a responsibility and duty. Why do you think the Bible says, be not many masters? If it was something to crave and to covet, why doesn't the Bible say covet to be a master? The Bible says, be not many masters, knowing ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Second Corinthians chapter 10, Paul understood it. Paul had more authority than any man short of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament church. Here's what he had to say about his authority. Second Corinthians 10, 8. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. Say in 2 Corinthians, Paul had to spend an epistle proving to the Corinthian church that he was worthy of them listening to him because he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us in this verse, God has given us apostles authority i have authority i could boast of it if i chose to do so but the authority god has given me is not for destruction god did not create positions of authority 
to grind under their feet all those under, in submission. God created authority for edification, to build up, to promote, to save, to benefit, to shelter, to maximize those under authority. Look at chapter 13 and verse 10, same point. 2 Corinthians 13, 10. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Can a husband be sharp with his wife? Indeed, should a husband be sharp with his wife? Sometimes. Should Paul have been sharp with the Corinthians? Sometimes they needed it. But what he says, tells us here is, he is hoping that their behavior will change where he will not have to use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification. If I can get that point across, so much of being a wife and being a husband is a mental attitude, your mental attitude towards your wife. God made me a husband not for me to sit back and have grapes plopped in my mouth and my wife run and get some chocolate chip cookies out of the kitchen with a glass of milk while I watch the television, and if I don't have a remote control, she's my living remote control. You know, for a wife to do some of those things is great. That's a good servant. That's a good wife. But that isn't why God made you a husband. God made you a husband because supposedly you're the stronger vessel. But the only way that stronger vessel works is if it assumes its responsibility and promotes and maximizes and edifies and builds up and raises up the wife by doing everything he can for her benefit and her growth as a person, as a woman, as his wife. I mean, that, the, if you can get the concept of what I'm saying, it's a complete change in attitude. God made you a husband to build up your wife. And I'll prove it when we get to the passages in the New Testament that specifically address husbands. God made you a husband, and I might as well use the terms, to nourish your wife. What does it mean to nourish a wife? Every mother knows what it means to nourish a baby. It means to provide absolutely everything that baby needs for maximum growth. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. When the Bible says that we are to esteem all of God's precepts concerning all things to be right and to hate every false way, when we study the subject of marriage, there's more than just studying Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. And do you realize those are the only three passages in the New Testament that deal with a command for husbands? I'm going to draw from every verse that it can possibly be found in the Word of God, I hope, that bears on the subject because a husband is in a position of authority and we've seen already that masters that are in a position of authority over employees are compared to husbands and wives are compared to servants as far as the basis of submission and authority. So therefore we can look at masters and servants and draw principles. Here's a principle from pastors and you re let's read this as it is intended to pastors but draw from it the principle, this applies to husbands also. The qualification for a bishop in, chap in verse 7 of chapter 1. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. 
What does it say? Not self-willed. Not self-willed. God made the position of pastor not for a man to have his own will in a congregation. God made pastors for the benefit, the building up, the edifying of the congregation. It's not to be a matter of self-will. Notice the condemnation there of a man who enters the ministry and even has the thought of exercising his own will and running things the way he wants to outside of God's Word. He has an obligation of building up the church, not building himself up. He's not selfishly interested in the church. He's interested in the welfare of the congregation. What about husbands? Are they to enter into marriage simply interested in their own will and their own selfish pursuits? Is marriage a relationship of getting or is marriage a relationship of giving? And there's a balance to it, but it's a relationship of giving. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll see the same point. 1 Peter chapter 5 about ministers, and we can draw from it. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3, Peter told ministers, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. They're not to be self-willed. They're not to be lords. God did not create husbands to be dominating, domineering tyrants. They have been given that position of authority for the promotion of their wife. Not to promote the wife above themselves. That would be ridiculous. But to promote the wife as far as she can possibly be promoted in her role as a help meet for Adam to make her everything she can be, intellectually, physically, experientially, communication-wise, to be the best wife that she can be, to be the best woman she can be, to be the best mother she can be, to be the best church member she can be. God placed husbands with that duty. Look at Proverbs chapter 28 as we move further in reminding ourselves of what we learned last Sunday. I love a king against whom there is no rising up. I've preached it. I've promoted God is a king like that, and God himself loves kings like that. That's why I love them, I hope. If God says it's a beautiful sight to see a king against whom there is no rising up, I love the same sight. But God also said this. Proverbs 28 and verse 16, The prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor. You show me a person in authority that doesn't have understanding on how to manage people. And I'll show you a great oppressor. And as we read last Sunday evening from Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 1, Oh, the cries of them that are under an oppressive ruler, because there is no comfort and there is no power on their side. And it's a terrible ordeal to be in. And listen, when the full message of the gospel is preached about marriage, it is the most liberating message the world has ever heard for women. Because when the obligation is assumed and the burden is borne by the husband for all the things that God requires of him toward his wife, she is indeed a liberated, protected, defended, and secure person. It's only when understanding is wanting, that means it's not there, it's lacking, it's non-existent, that someone in authority becomes an oppressor. That is when kings begin rewarding those that do evil and punishing those that do well. 
That's basically the nation we live in today in some respects. You know, if, if you won't work and you'll have lots of kids, you can make a lot of money from our government. It will reward you for not working and for not planning your family. It's called ADC. And we could go on and on for quite a while this evening talking about how our government rewards those that do evil and punishes those that do well. Just let me remind you, you're going to be filling out your tax return shortly. If you have saved, which God commands, and you have invested some of that money and earned interest on it, our government will penalize you for earning interest on savings by taxing it. If you've been a dog's rear end, which God calls everyone who borrows money unnecessarily, if you've been a dog's tail and you have borrowed money, our government will subsidize your borrowing by letting you deduct that interest from your taxable income. One more example of how our government has reversed the role of government. It is no longer a rewarder of them that do well. It's a punisher of the same group. I cannot think of a better passage for you to remember, well, this is the principle of it right here, Proverbs 28, 16, then 1 Kings chapter 12, where we read last Sunday, and you don't, need not turn there, about Rehoboam. Solomon died. Rehoboam had the whole nation before him to have a most glorious reign. Can you imagine taking over after Solomon? What a situation. Palaces, houses, taxes, money. The Bible tells us that gold and silver were in, was in Jerusalem like stones. That's how plentiful it was. Rehoboam had it all before him. The people came and said, Solomon was a hard king. If you loosen things up just a bit, we'll serve you forever. What a proposition. But like I said last Sunday, and I mean this, a young buck, young men who are still impulsive and who have not learned wisdom of dealing with others, especially women and especially their wives, and kings who have not learned on how to manage a large group of people, young Rehoboam listened to his young counselors and said, if you thought Solomon was hard, I'm going to be worse. And the Bible says he spake to them roughly. You know, he was going to assert his authority. He was going to be a king against whom there was no rising up. Is there such a thing as a king in this world against whom there is no rising up if he behaves without understanding. What happened? Ten tribes rose up. What could he do? Nothing. Ten tribes rose up and walked away and said, we have no part in Jesse. Forget it, sons of Jesse. We're going to start our own nation. And they began the ten tribes of Israel with a capital at Samaria instead of at Jerusalem. What did the old men tell him to do? The old men said, if in this matter you'll serve the people and loosen the burden that Solomon placed on them, these people will serve you forever. Those old men had wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. And it's the wisdom we're going to see this evening as we look at further scriptures about husbands and wives. And the point I tried to make from that whole lesson is, for someone in authority, there is a place for compromise. Yes. The woman was made for the man absolutely, unqualifiedly. Yes, the man was made first. 
Yes, the man is to rule over the woman. Yes, the woman's desires are to be the man's desires. But submission is voluntary, and if a husband does not earn it, promote it, by appropriate compromise, he will lose it. And you'll have a rebellious... Let me take that word back. You'll have a wife on your hands that will appear to be rebellious when all she's doing is breaking under the pressure that you've put on her. Israel was not rebellious. Israel had been broken by Solomon and they begged for some relief. Rehoboam refused to give it to them. And he lost his wife. He lost his kingdom. And you men will lose yours. And many, maybe some of you men have already lost yours in some of the good ways a wife can serve her husband because you're too oppressive. Have you ever thought about that? You know you can lose your wife without having her walk out the door. I, I think most of you men know what I'm talking about. Most of you men at some time or other have oppressed your wife too hard and you have lost your wife. Her affection, her willingness, her cheerfulness was not there. You had, you had lost her. Why? Maybe, probably, because you were oppressive without understanding. She was not necessarily rebelling. She was at a breaking point. And yet she has a conscience that tells her, God does not let me walk out on this marriage. And yet she's not strong enough to keep serving you, loving you, polishing your shoes, and doing everything you expect from your wife cheerfully because she's broken under the pressure. Some of you men, and God is my witness and he knows it, would break sooner than your wives if your masters treated you the way you've treated your wives in the past. I enjoy getting calls from men complaining about their masters sometimes because I just record that information in my mind. And right now, I guess I'm resurrecting it all. How can you complain about your masters, brethren, unless you've been most fair and equitable, kind and considerate and compromising with your wives? Because it's a similar relationship. Wives submit better to kindness. What's the old uh, proverb? It's easier to catch flies with honey than with vinegar. Is that how something to that effect? Why don't we, re we remember some wisdom like that? Wives submit better with a husband's kindness, and husbands are kinder with wives' submission. Now, I spent my two weeks on the wives submitting to earn their husband's kindness, but you husbands can love your wives into submission. Cheerful, glad submission. And remember, remember the example I gave when I closed out the sermon last Sunday evening. A couple of you men came, and I could tell by the look on your faces and the words that came from your tongues that I hit home. I talk about loving your wife into submission, or if I talk about it. Some men will say, but I don't want to spoil her. She'll start to expect that and slack off. My illustration last Sunday evening was, if you were called in tomorrow morning, by a high official in your company and sat down and he mentioned that they had a special meeting 
of the board of directors and they agreed to give you a 25% increase effective immediately with a company car, would you be spoiled and slack off in your treatment of your master? Or would you show up the next day at 4 a.m.? And would you stay that evening to 7.30? I know what you would all do. I'd do the same thing. Why is it when it comes to our wives, we say, if we ever did something like that for them, they'd get spoiled and slough off? Isn't it pitiful how we think and reason in our minds? Isn't it? I don't want to spoil her. Listen, you want to be spoiled in the job because you know if he'd spoil you, you'd, you'd die for him. You'd burn yourself out on that job as long as he takes good care of you. Men know that kindness from masters promotes service, but their wives seldom see it. Most of you call me when something good happens on the job. A promotion, an increase, a new job, a new opportunity for a promotion. I love hearing it. I love celebrating and rejoicing in goodness that God shows toward each, each of you. Why do you enjoy it so much? Why do you call me and boast of it? Why does it do so much for you? Why does it drive you to work harder for your master? And then you seldom initiate acts of kindness and honor and reward and blessing for your wives. Some of you are better than others. Some of you are pitiful. Men know how to seduce a woman. Why do they forget about it when they marry their wives? It has been my privilege to see a few men have wives die or divorce women. And then to see those men prepare themselves to get wife number two. All of a sudden, efforts are made to drop weight, get in physical shape, work hard on the job and lay aside some savings, make preparations for things. To, they they got to have money to be able to dump on this woman to show her acts of kindness to win her affection and undying loyalty. And then once you marry them, what happens to the art of seduction? You knew it took kindness to get a woman in the first place. What happens after you marry her? And brethren, I have a heart just like yours. I wish to God I didn't. I wish to God I could stand up here this evening and say, all you need to do is ask my wife. On the definition of a husband's kindness, charity, generosity, initiative, in loving her into submission, I have to fight the same enemy we all fight. We know how to seduce a woman. We know how masters get greater effort out of us on the job. Why can't we practice that in our homes? Surprise the woman. Buy her some nice things. Take her to some nice places. Shock her by telling her some nice things. Shock her even more by doing it in public. But make sure you know some first aid because she may not know how to take it. Shocker. Brag about her in public. A couple of you are very good at it in public. 
I envy you, but I will whip you with time. There are a couple men in this congregation that know well how to praise their wives in public, and they do it frequently, and most of you know who I'm talking about. But those are good examples we ought to emulate. When was, what would happen to you if you were in a meeting where your boss or your boss's boss singled you out in front of others that are your competitors and praised you for a job well done and said you are a real asset to the firm? What would happen to your head? It'd be so big you'd need a crowbar to get out the door. What would happen to your work efforts over the next week? You'd wash his car on the lunch hour, even if you were in a three-piece suit. You'd do anything for him. A little bit of public praise. You knew that before you married your wife. What happened after you married her? And don't you dare say, I just, I don't feel the same feelings I had then. You, go ahead and say it now. But before I get through with this series, I'm going to take that concept and put it in the dirt and grind it to powder. It has nothing to do with feelings. Right. If your marriage is based on feelings, you better fall on your knees as soon as you can find a secret closet and beg God to save you from adultery. Because I'll tell you what will happen if your marriage is based on feelings. You're going to run across Susie's secretary that's going to bring back those feelings. Because God never intended feelings to be the basis for marriage. Susie's secretary will always be able to generate more feelings than your wife. By the nature of sin and the novelty of something eaten in secret. Remember what the Bible said, bread eaten in secret is sweet. Women, if your husband... Oh, don't you let... Listen, I've got sermons planned for that one. That one will be destroyed. It has nothing to do with feelings. If your marriage is based on feelings, your marriage is on the rocks. You do what I'm saying, and I guarantee you, the feelings will follow. When you give of yourself toward another human being, even if it's your enemy, why does Jesus say, love your enemy? Do good to him that despitefully uses you. Guess what will follow that? A good feeling about that individual. But first of all, it starts with action, and the feelings are always under control. I'll get to that in a minute, about love in the 20th century being the love of Playboy magazine. It's a happening that is out of your control, that hits you, and you can't control it, and it takes charge, and you just have this burst of emotion for this person that drives you to do all these things. That feeling is simply for you to use that object of affection. You don't give when you have those feelings other than to get for yourself. And that isn't the basis for a lasting marriage. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, if men would treat their wives as they wish their masters would treat them. Public praise, frequent rec rec recognition, and generous rewards. Aren't those the three things we love to get from our masters? Public recognition, public praise, generous remuneration. Oh, if we would treat our wives that way, they would serve us as well as we'd serve the master that is so kind. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. In the New Testament... The main command, the main imperative verb given to husbands is 
love your wives. It is a fact in most societies where the Bible has not traveled, the woman is nothing. The woman is simply an abused possession of the man. I mean, the barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen is all she amounts to. Where the Bible has not gone. It's a pity when it occurs in a nation like America where the Bible has gone, although that is not the rule. That is the great exception today. The rule is today that women are ruling over their husbands. But in the Bible days, there was a warning given to men, husbands, love your wives. That's the command. In Colossians chapter 3, keeping your hand at Ephesians 5, Colossians 3.19, Paul says again, husbands, love your wives. What is love? Love is definitely one of the most, most complicated subjects to preach from the Bible. I mean, when the Bible says to love your enemies and to love your wife and then to hate your wife in order to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, there is a great deal of dividing to do with the concept of love. I've preached on it before. I don't have time to preach it again. I'll give you the definition we arrived at by studying most of the occurrences of love in the Scriptures. Love is the sacrificial desire that results in action for the welfare of another. Love is desiring the welfare of another, and it desires it to the point that it will sacrifice its personal interests for the welfare of another, and it will result in action. Love is not a feeling. Love in the Bible is primarily an act of your mind and will toward another person to do certain things toward them for their welfare. That's what the Bible teaches about love. Love is that desire, when you look at your wife, to make her all that God expects her to be, all that she's capable of being for you to promote her, to build her up, and to edify her. Love is going to give to make her all that she should be. It's going to be to maximize your wife. I've already preached to the women. A good woman is a woman who maximizes her husband. Because if a woman will make her husband great, she's going to be right there with him, and she shall be great. And she shall be praised for making her husband great. Men, if you're going to be great, you need to have a great woman behind you and you need to make your woman all that she can be. Some of you men, if you'd promote and build up your women and let them loose a little bit and build them up, they'd make you greater than you are. You'll never be great if you don't use your woman. If God said it is not good for the man to be alone and he needs help, and you know I'm corrupting the words there a little bit, but the sense is the same, I believe it. If God said that, I believe it. And if we'll make our women great, they'll make us great. If there is no love in a marriage, it's your fault. Right. You say, well, what if she doesn't love me back? Well, what if she doesn't? You go ahead and love her anyway. There'll be love in that marriage, won't there? Find me the reference where it tells wives to love their husbands. Somebody quote it. I mean, the Bible must be filled with it. You're having trouble. Who's responsible for love in the home? The husband is. 
there is a place. Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. Women are to teach, the older women are to teach the younger women to love their children and to love their husbands. But when Paul addresses wives, that isn't the concept. It's submission. When Paul addresses husbands, it's love. If there isn't love in a home, it's because you're at fault. We love God because He first loved us. And how are husbands supposed to love their wives? As Christ loved the church, they better get busy loving. If there's not love there, it's their responsibility. Very quickly, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and remind ourselves of what love is. Love is sacrificial desire for the welfare of another. 1 Corinthians 13, we've been over the passage before. There are 15 descriptions of love in these verses that are so important to us. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, as I read them one by one, please ask yourselves, do I treat my wife this way? 1 Corinthians 13, 4, charity suffereth long. Love suffers a long time. Is that the way you treat your wife? Or when she makes a mistake, when she forgets something, when she loses control of her mouth, or when she does something you've told her not to do, do you, do you immediately judge her for it? Love suffers long. Love is kind. We've just been over that point. When was the last time you tried to seduce your wife into greater submission and loyalty and cheerfulness in your home? I'm not talking about the bedroom. When was the last time you showed kindness that way? Love is kind. Love is initiating acts of kindness toward the object of its affection. Love or charity envieth not. Do you resent her when something good happens to her? Do you resent her possibly for an ability that exceeds yours in some area? Or are you glad that God gave you a woman capable as she is? And do you tell her so? Or do you envy her? Love vaunteth not itself. What is the topic of conversation in your home? Is it always you vaunting yourself? What you've done at the job? The promotion you're about to get? The promotion you got? The raise you got? The good things happening to you? The things you need? The things you bought? What is the topic of conversation? It shouldn't be all you if you love your wife. Love vaunteth not itself. It's not always puffing itself up. Love is not puffed up. Love is not too proud to get down and say, should I say amen? Those seven words, I am sorry and I was wrong. I am sorry and I was wrong. Love is not puffed up. Love is able to do that when you are wrong. You say, well, if I told my wife I was wrong, she'd, she'd get cocky about it. She'd beat me for it. She'd remind me of it every week. Love doesn't have fear like that. Love doesn't have fear like that. We've got a basic problem of a lack of love and trust if, you, if that thought goes through your mind. So what if she does those things? You're still commanded to love her and the commandment still is, love is not puffed up. It's not too proud to get down. Verse number 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, Love doth not behave itself unseemly. There are reasonable 
and there are unreasonable ways to treat your wife. Are you a reasonable husband? Love doth not behave itself unseemly. Unreasonable expectations or demands from your wife. Love seeketh not her own. This goes back to our definition. When a husband is to love his wife, it isn't to get what he can out of her as a primary motivation. It is to make her all that she can be. Love seeketh not her own. Love is seeking the welfare of another. Remember, love is sacrificial desire for the welfare of another. Is, is that the love of God? Absolutely. The love of God is the sacrificial desire for the welfare of God. Verse 5, love is not easily provoked. When your wife has a bad day, your wife loses her temper, your wife is depressed, your wife complains, are you quick to chop at her and to make her pay for her error? Let me ask this. Have you ever done any of those things to your master? Did he fire you the day you did it? How many things has your master overlooked? If your wife comes back from some meeting or some shopping trip and she's an hour late, what is your attitude toward her? What have you been doing? Where'd you go? What were you up to? Love thinketh no evil. Where do you think she went? Some singles bar in town? Love thinketh no evil. Love isn't stupid, but love thinks no evil when there's no basis for it. When she wants to take the checkbook to go shopping instead of a specified amount of cash, are you able to relinquish that checkbook thinking no evil of her? I'm getting better, brethren. <laughs> Listen, this is a family. I'm not a Presbyterian minister. My wife takes the checkbook at least once a week on me now. And she hasn't abused it. Some women, maybe some in this congregation, would abuse it. Maybe they would abuse it without knowing they're abusing it because they haven't been trained properly in financial matters. My wife now has reached a point where she is uncomfortably, in my judgment, too frugal. I cannot get her sometimes to buy what I wish she would purchase because 12 years has been plenty of training the wrong way or to an excess that way. Love thinketh no evil. I trust her with the checkbook. I trust that she's not going to do anything wrong with it. She's not going to come home having overdrawn my account or using an excessive amount for some basic need that we have that week. Love thinketh no evil. Do you trust your wife or are you always second-guessing her motives? You're questioning her motives. Love thinks no evil about other people and their motives. Verse 6, love rejoiceth not in iniquity, Love rejoiceth in the truth. If you love your wives, you will have no rejoicing. You'll take no pleasure, and you'll allow no evil in your home. 
whether that's watching something ungodly together on television or any other of the myriad illustrations I could give of a husband and a wife doing things that are ungodly between themselves. A true leader that loves his wife will not rejoice in iniquity. When she sins, another aspect of this same commandment, when she sins and makes a mistake, love does not rejoice in her falling. Love does not rejoice in her sin. Verse 7, love beareth all things. Love believeth all things. Love hopeth all things, and it endureth all things. If your wife tells you something, do you believe it? If she tells you something and it doesn't look like it's true, do you hope it? If she doesn't do what you expected her to do, do you endure it? Do you bear it? Love is a bearing trait, not an overbearing trait. It's the opposite of what we may tend to be sometimes by nature, overbearing. Love bears. Love is giving. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is giving. Today, in our world, love is getting. Young men say to young women, I love you, in order to get something from them. That is the general use of those three words, I love you. That is to open her up, to break down her resistance, and to get what they want out of her. And then once they've got what they want out of her, they float to the next flower, just like a bee. From one flower to another, once they've drawn the nectar from it, they go to the next one, and they use the key, I love you. Love is getting. In the world's depraved, perverse mind, in the Bible, love is giving. Husbands, love your wives by giving, giving them time. When was the last time you ruled out every other activity that can be raised to take your time, and believe me, there's plenty of them, simply to have time with your wife? Nothing else to do. You went out to dinner, just the two of you. You sat at home and talked. Just some of you I know, that, that wouldn't have made sense. Yes, a husband can stay at home and talk to his wife. Just the two of you. You can communicate. That means you can tell her things about yourself, what you're afraid of, what your ambitions are, what your hopes are for your family, what some of your earlier experiences in life that have affected you have done to you. Yet you can do that. But most don't have the time, and the rest don't think it's important. A husband will give. A husband will give time for his wife. He'll give affection. When do you let your wife know that you love her, want her around, are pleased with her, and I'm not talking about the bedroom? Husbands can give money. Are you too stingy with your wife? You don't want your boss to be too stingy with you. Some of you complain. You work up all sorts of ideas on how to promote yourself on the job by getting more money out of your employer? When was the last time you were generous with your wife? And if I see a wife abuse the liberty, let's say if you other women see a wife abuse her liberty, I hope you'll crush her. That's how we all work together. 
There should be no abuse of a liberty like that. Husbands can love their wives by giving time, affection, money. How about liberty? You know, you husbands get to get up in the morning and don't talk about it being such a burden. Remember, I'm a husband too. Talk about it being such a burden. You get to get up in the morning, get in that car, and drive away from Torture City. You know, when there's lots of young kids running around crying, diapers to be changed, snotty noses, they're teething, they're crying, the phone's ringing, things are breaking down, you get to get in that truck or car and drive away. What a privilege on one hand. Do you give your wife some liberty when you stay at home and let her get out and enjoy some freedom? If you say, where do you find that in the Word of God? Go read Proverbs chapter 31. That woman is away from home quite a bit of the time. And she's engaging in some rather stimulating activities that would promote her abilities and confidence. Give her some liberty. That doesn't mean having her run around town doing your errands necessarily. That isn't liberty. You say, but I let her get in the car. Yes, but you, you had her take three children with her. And of course, I don't know what I'm talking about, do I? <laughs> I'm thankful that conversion is a process. If it was an act, whatever happened, it's a process. Conversion is a process. Do you give your wife liberty? You love it. On the job, you love to be given some liberty to do things the way you would want to do them. Listen, I want you to take the rest of the day off and just go think about that particular project and see what you can come up with. You've been working hard for us. Take Friday off. I don't want to see you in here. Just go blow the day. Take it off. Spend it with your family. We love that kind of liberty. Why don't we give it to our wives? Let's give it to our wives more. A husband can love his wife by giving to her effort to help her around the house. Things that she needs done, he can do for her and get things taken care of that would be a great blessing to her. True love seeks to give what the other needs. You will look at your wife, figure out what she needs, and give her what she needs. Love does not simply give what is convenient. Let's define love, however, by what it is not. That's what it is. Let's define it by what it is not. Love is not a happening. Brethren, love is not a feeling straight from Aphrodite that grabs a hold of you and wrenches your heart with emotion and has your stomach turn upside down and you just get a warm feeling all over and you're moved to passion every time you see this thing. That is not love. That is infatuation. It has never held a, a marriage together, and it never will. And that's all young people are capable of developing between themselves and another person. You say, hey, that wasn't true with me. I knew another couple that I read about in the 1300s that it wasn't true of them. Well, don't give me exceptions. The general rule is young people are attracted to each other by infatuation, not by Bible love of giving. I want to marry this woman to make her great. I want to promote her. I want to edify her. <laughs> Listen, 
You're choking on hearing the words. You married that woman for what you could get out of her. You were so overwhelmed with infatuation for what she could give you. You were burning in your desire for her, and because we don't have a proper foundation taught in America, we have marriages based on infatuation, based on feelings, based on a happening. What happens in a marriage as soon as you're married for about 24 hours? It starts to decline. I'll never tell anyone I marry, and I didn't. In the marriage that I've performed so far, as soon as the wedding is over, the feelings will start to decline. Every one of you know that's true. If you don't, I'll, I'll talk to your wife and we'll find out if you still act with the same level of passion that you did before you married her and you have consistently over time. Feelings and infatuation die. If your marriage is based on those feelings and they begin to die, you are then faced with a hopeless situation. Because you went into this relationship based on these feelings, the feelings are gone. What do you do now to keep the relationship together? And do you know what happens? The man goes to the office and Susie's secretary brings him his coffee and wiggles away as she walks back to her desk and all of a sudden the feelings start coming back because you're infatuated with another woman. And the woman meets a man who is kind, considerate, patient, sensitive, tender toward her verbally, and all of a sudden she finds that she has feelings rising for another man. If you have a marriage based on feelings, your marriage is on the rocks and you're in the danger of adultery. Marriage is not based on feelings. God never told us in Ephesians 5, husbands, make sure you have a good warm feeling for your wife. Listen, the good warm feeling isn't going to be there many times when you have to do some of the things I've described. Jesus Christ had no good, warm feeling for you. He said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He had a job to do. He made a mental decision to do it, and he did it by giving himself. He was not gushing with warm feelings. That's how you're to love your wives. I'll tell you, brethren, we live in a day where the whole basis, I don't mean part of it, the whole basis is infatuation. I mean, from the third grade on, you know, kids are writing each other little notes, I love you. I lo they, don't, they don't even know what they're talking about, and we let it go. By the sixth grade, you know, they're going steady. Well, he loves me so much, he's going steady with me. Oh, how precious. Doesn't that just move you? It moves me, too. <clears throat> that is a, a lie from Satan that will destroy our lives. We live in a whoremonging, adulterous generation, and the reason is relationships are based on feeling. Feelings will never last in the way the world describes. You can get your feelings back and keep them through proper action. You give of yourself for another, and the feelings will come. Don't say, I can't love my wife because I don't feel the love anymore. You don't need to feel the love. Go home and love her tonight and give something to her tonight for her benefit as your wife. 
the feelings will come with the giving. Fathers, I warn you, you better be on top of your children, especially fathers of daughters. Why am I so dogmatic and so hard, and why do I bring it up so often that parents ought to be instrumental in selecting their children's mates? Because children don't know squat about what keeps marriages together. Amen. Parents who have been married for 20 years, which will usually be the minimum before a child's getting married, have had 20 years of experience about what keeps a marriage together. They know that it is something a whole lot deeper than infatuation. But what happens today in America? You know, the girl comes traipsing home with her boyfriend from high school or something and say, Daddy, I love him. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't even know what the word love means. She is operating solely based on feelings. This guy is gratifying her in some way. He's giving her attention. He's giving her sexual pleasure. He's giving her glory at school because she's got a boyfriend now who might happen to have a reputation. For whatever the motive, she's getting something from it. That's why she loves him. And as soon as they're married and those things disappear, the sex gets old, the attention disappears because the guy's got what he wanted, the reputation's gone because you're no longer in high school, now you're unemployed. Then what happens? There's nothing to hold the marriage together and they go their separate ways. We just don't love each other anymore. <laughs> Haven't you ever heard that? We just don't love each other anymore. God commands love. If you don't love each other anymore, husbands, you're sinning. Love her anyway. It's not infatuated with her. It's lover. That means give for her. Fathers, I've warned you better be on top of especially your daughters and their emotional relationships with others. Every man shall bear his own burden. And that is not a threat. That's just a warning from Scripture, and I'm scared for some of you. Love does not compromise God-ordained authority by subverting God's ordained roles for the man and the woman. When the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives and give yourself for her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that does not mean the husband gives so much of himself that he becomes the servant and she becomes the ruler. That's obviously not intended. Think about God. Think, let's think about mothers, for instance, relative to that point. A mother is taught in Titus chapter 2 and verse 5 to love her children. Does that mean that a mother ought to love her children so much and give herself for them that she never disciplines them? No, there comes a time in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 13 when a mother is to stand before the elders of her city and place her hand on the head of her son and have him stoned to death. Love still maintains authority. Love does not compromise the position of authority. Love requires honor, reverence, and obedience from children. Love does not give so much that it says, well, I don't want to require all these things for my child. I want to let them have a free choice as to what they want to do. They can treat me any way that they feel because it's coming naturally to them. I don't want to stifle their innate desires. 
I want to give that way. I don't need the respect. Now, that's how most parents teach today. That's how a lot of Christian psychologists write. Let the little brat express himself. Where can you find that in the Word of God? Right. Crush the little brat until he knows how to express himself properly. Amen. But yet a mother loves her children. Yet she has to maintain her position of authority over them. Loving her child never lets them get away with anything God would condemn. What about God? Does God ever love his people so much that he compromises the position he has? Does God love his people so much that he's given himself, did Christ give himself for the people in order that they might sit in a throne and he could grovel at their feet? Christ loved the church so much and gave himself for it so that they could stand holy and glorified in his presence and praise him throughout eternity. And he didn't love them further than that because love must be limited. Love does not compromise the positions and roles God has given. I hope you're catching the point. What hap because what happens so many times, and we see extremes, we've got a ditch over here called the ditch of oppressive husbands. We've got the ditch over here called the 20th century husband, where he's ruled by his wife. You preach to men in Ephesians 5:25 that they ought to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The husband doesn't know where to draw the line. Do I just love and give and love and give and love and give and love and give until she's up here and I'm down here? You've subverted the whole ordination of creation in the role of the man and the woman. God never did that, and you as parents never do that with your children. You love them to a point. That means love never compromises authority. Love will wisely manage authority, but it will never compromise it to where God would be dishonored. Second, another point on a negative aspect of love to help define it, Love does not compromise God-ordained condemnation of wickedness and iniquity. Unconditional love is a concept of the devil. There is no such thing in this world from God. I have a sermon coming. I've been reading several books recently about the self-love, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-theories of our generation. And they're intimately tied together with unconditional love. It's the catch-all nowadays for child training and healthy marriages. Unconditional love. It is the single most important concept taught today by Christian marriage counselors and Christian psychologists attempting to promote godly families. Unconditional love. It means you love someone or you love yourself simply because you are. It is Christian existentialism. Right. Existentialism is when you exist. Therefore, you are God. Therefore, whatever you choose to do is right because you exist. Pagan philosophers came up with it. Christian psychologists have adopted it because the only place you can be taught psychology is by pagans, because there isn't such a thing as Christian psychology. Because the whole nature of psychology is the world's philosophy on how men are to live together. The Bible's already addressed it. I love myself because I'm a human being. Every human being has inherent 
innate worth, value, honor, and should be loved and esteemed. I am going to read you some quotes by some very favorite leaders in our society when I get to that subject in sins of the 20th century that will gag you, that will gag you, that human beings have innate value and worth. And therefore, it is our obligation to love ourselves. And we cannot be good Christians until we learn to love ourselves. And from that flows unconditional love, which means I should love myself regardless of what I'm doing. I should love myself regardless of performance because I am a valuable creature by existence, not by performance. I'll tell you where it came from in Christian circles. All of you in this church claim to believe Psalm 5.5, where God said, The foolish shall not stand in his sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. It came from the violation of that verse. As soon as the pulpits in America began teaching that God loves men unconditionally and universally, that has permeated man's thinking. He is drunk with unconditional love. That is where it came from. Does God love unconditionally? Does God love unconditionally? Can, can God love a sinner? No. I wonder what he thinks of the inherent worth and value of the human being. Listen, he says angels are worth more and he damned them to hell. God does not love his elect unconditionally. Do you know what he had to do in order to love them? He had to make them perfect. He did that in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God has always loved on performance and true character. So how does he love sinners? He makes us with a perfect character, holy and without blame. How about practically? Does God love us and show us his favor and kindness and mercy unconditionally in, a, in the practical phase? He'll beat the tar out of you if you misbehave. He doesn't think a great deal of your inherent worth. He'll take you out of this world if you live wicked long enough. There's a whole lot more to be said on that. You know what that leads to? It leads to men like Bill Gothard drawing little pictures like I've brought to this church before where a husband stands at the door and subsidizes his wife's iniquity. God never called on husbands to do that. Right. Never. Joseph was a just man. The Bible says he was going to put away Mary for her fornication. I'm going to make you sick of that the Lord willing, one of these weeks so that you'll be saved from it. It is when you look at all the material coming forth in child training manuals, marriage manuals, you wonder, where's the philosophical basis that's different from the Word of God? It sounds good. It, it sounds nice. It sounds tender. It sounds rotten. But once you look at it closely, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors. The Bible tells us to love God. The Bible tells us to esteem others more important than ourselves. The Bible warns us that in the last days, men would be lovers of their own selves. I mean, brethren, God has blessed you with a degree of truth and understanding of what's going on in this world if you listen. That is incredible. 
to see through men who have PhDs and realize they're operating from an entirely false basis. Love is, does not compromise God-ordained condemnation of wickedness and iniquity. A mother may very well withhold her love, affection, kindness toward a child that rejects her, rebels against her, and leaves home. A good woman will be able to stand against that child and say, I don't need you, and if you're going to live like that, then you can go live in the street until you come crawling home in repentance. Now, that's withholding love and affection. It does not compromise with sin. God's love is limited. God's love, he's of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. Yes, the Bible says God is love, but never forget it said God is holy before that. God's love is limited by his holiness. God's holiness is not limited by his love. Let's get first things first in the Bible. First, the object must be holy, and then God may love it. God does not require a husband to love his wife when she sins in certain ways. God has never required a husband to love his wife when she commits adultery. A just man will throw her out. In the Bible, she would have been condemned and stoned to death. Now, how much good would love do then? Love does not compromise over sin. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we've looked at the word love a little bit. Let's just spend a, little, a few more minutes on two other verbs here in this passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives. That doesn't mean get a feeling. It doesn't mean get infatuated. It doesn't mean compromise your position of authority. It doesn't mean cover sin and compromise with sin. It means to give of yourself for her welfare. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That, here's the reason, the purpose of his giving. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That, here's the purpose or the end, the object in view. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that, that it should be holy and without blemish. There's a lot in those verses. We're going to be coming back to them next Sunday evening. The important point is, have you built your wife up to be a glorious wife? Have you promoted her? Have you given her the liberty, the education, the time, the encouragement, the money, the opportunities with other women to be all that she should be and to make her a glorious wife? Because the more glorious your wife, the more glorious you will be because that wife will be serving and submitting to you. I read in Proverbs chapter 31 that that glorious woman called the virtuous woman, her husband sat in the gate and was known there for the wife he had. Right. <clears throat> Love your wives by making them all that they can and should be. But in verse 28, the apostle goes on to say, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. We've got two more verbs here that will help define the word love, and it's not a feeling. Nourishing a thing is not a feeling toward it. Nourishing is action, giving it all that it needs to grow. 
Look at a couple references. Look at Ruth chapter 4. I want to look at the word nourish. Ruth chapter 4. Remember that Ruth married Boaz and they had a child. And the women of the city came and said this unto Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15, they made this statement about the son she had. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. He shall be a restorer of thine life and a nourisher of thine old age. Now that does not mean he's going to have warm feelings as you grow old. It means as you grow old and need more help, and support, and sustenance, and care, you're now going to have a son able to do, in fact, a grandson, able to do that. Nourishing is restoring one's life, making one's life as much as it can be. Naomi, without a son, was poor. She didn't have liberty. I mean, she had to rely for her sustenance on gleanings in a field. A son would be able to go work for her and nourish her to give her in her old age what she needed. A husband should nourish his wife. He should provide for her what she needs to be all that she can be. Let's look also at Daniel 1 and 5. The book of Daniel chapter 1. King Nebuchadnezzar wants to have some wise Hebrew men serving him in the, with the Hebrew language. And we read in verse 5, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. An important use of that word, nourish. Why didn't he give them servants' rations? Why didn't he give them servants' rations? Because servants' rations are generally not much more than enough to get by on and get the job done at its bare minimum of acceptable performance. Well, how did he feed and provide for these men from Israel? He appointed them a daily provision of what? Oh, the king's meat. He gave them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. There's some wisdom in that. Was King Nebuchadnezzar expecting these men to pass him and become his king and he'd serve them? Why did he want to promote them so greatly by nourishing them with his own sustenance? Because he knew the greater the men that worked for him, the greater he would be. Every manager knows that. The more he can educate, promote, encourage those that work for him, the greater he will be as they serve him. Do you nourish your wife the same way? Do you give her of the things that you know have been profitable for you and let her experience those things that she might be greater and better because as she gets greater and better, I guarantee you on the authority of the Word of God, you'll be greater and better. But that's not even the primary motive for doing it. The primary motive for doing it is God commands it. Ephesians chapter 5. You know, you men take pains to secure everything necessary and desirable for your bodies. You eat right, dress right, go to the spa. Some of you 
Oh, you pamper your bodies. You want to be well taken care of. You make sure they get all they need. Enough sleep. Enough food. Enough entertainment. Enough recreation. You do that with your wife. If, if that's going to make you great, she needs to have some of that in order to be great herself. You need to nourish her. You know, those words sometimes have been preached and you don't even know what it's talking about. Nourish is what a mother does with her children. Nourish is what Nebuchadnezzar did with the men that he wanted to serve him. He promoted them and did everything he could to make them great. If you were to go on and read Daniel chapter 1, he taught them everything there was to know in the kingdom of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, in order that they might serve him well. Does your wife have adequate time? Does your wife have time to get everything done that she should get done? Or do you so disrupt her time and require so much out of her she can't get done what she needs to get done? Does she have enough money to do the things she should as a wife? Does she have enough rest? They're the weaker vessel. Do you give them enough time for rest? Do you give them recreation? We know what recreation does for us. Do you give them recreational opportunities? Do you give her the tools she needs to be efficient? Does she have some of the modern conveniences that are helpful around the house? Does she have diversion? Do you love a rut? Listen, the, you work five days a week. Some of you hard-working souls work six. Your wives work seven. Do you ever give her some diversion? You'd hate the rut of working the same job every single day. How about some diversion? Diversion doesn't spoil people. Diversion keeps them from losing their sanity. Husbands, give your wives some diversion. You know, I've heard a saying, a, a man works from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done. And not only is that true, Many times in a given 24-hour period, a man gets to call it quits on Friday afternoon. But a woman with meal preparation, child care, taking care of you, she keeps working right through the weekend. When was the last time you gave her a break and some diversion? You say she'd get spoiled. When was the last time you got spoiled for having the weekend off? Nourish your wives. Do you give your wife clothing? Do you give your wife intellectual stimulation? Do you allow her some opportunities to be encouraged mentally, challenged mentally, some education to be all that God intended for her to be? That's nourishing your wife. It is not a feeling. It's not tenderly caressing her. Nourishing your wife is giving things needful for her to maximize herself. The Bible also uses the word cherish. Now, the word cherish means to hold something dear. When we cherish something, we treat it with tenderness and affection. We make a whole lot about it. It's very important to us. The Bible uses this word only a few times. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. Let's understand what the word cherish means in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul said, But we were gentle among you, 
even as a nurse cherisheth her children. I know what runs through half the men's minds in this congregation. Being gentle and cherishing is a sign of weakness. It's easy to think that way sometimes if you've got a perverse mind. But when the Apostle Paul, who was no wimp, just read some of his epistles, said that he cherished the Thessalonians as a nurse would cherish her children, and he did it with gentleness. Cherishing your wife is gently treating her dearly and making a big deal over her, treating her with tenderness and affection. How good are you at cherishing your wife? You know what I'd like to see among the men? We've all got competitive bones in our bodies. Let's see who can out-cherish our wives. Let's see who can out-cherish our wives. Make a big deal over them. Treat them like a valuable object. Let them know it. Praise them in public. Praise them in private. Treat them with gentleness. Pamper them to some degree. Maintaining the purpose of the woman, and yet pampering them because it's a commandment. Dealing with them gently. Oh, you big babies. I shouldn't have said that, right, Bob? <laughs> you big babies cherish your bodies. You pamper them. You have a headache. You hit the deck. You're sick. You need medicine. Oh, when you've got the flu, I hear about some of you men when you get the flu. You're a lot like, you're a lot like me. When I get the flu, I want to be pampered. I need a mommy when I get the flu. I know that. I'll admit it. She serves me well. But do we ever return the favor of pampering our wives, or do we expect them to be at the grindstone seven days a week, 168 hours a week? Men, pamper, cherish, tenderly care for your wives with gentleness, as Paul took care of the Thessalonians. Not always criticizing, not always stepping on them, not always expecting a great deal, but showing some leniency and showing them as a valued object of affection. Do you glory in your wife? If you cherish something, you glory in it. You consider it dear and important to you. Do you glory in your wife? Do you esteem her highly? Do you esteem your wife highly? That's to cherish something. Do you treat her tenderly? Do you show her much affection? Do you make a big deal over her? Do you give her the verbal expressions of love that she needs? Look at Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5 on this subject of cherishing your wife. And it'll be the last point, and we close as soon as we read this and I comment on it. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. I'll show you. Here's the hard-nosed Old Testament scriptures. I mean, they put a woman in her place, didn't they? Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. But that's manly. He shall not go out to war. Neither shall he be charged with any business. But I've got my career. Neither 
shall he be charged with any business. But he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. Listen, marrying a man and submitting to him is a great step in a woman's life. And God well knew they needed some cheering up. When was the last time you went out of your way to cheer up your wife? God commanded a whole year dedicated to that in the first year of marriage. And obviously, by the dedication of that first year, he intended it to continue after that because Paul taught men should cherish their wives. Do you cheer up the wife that you have taken by cherishing her, giving her some tender affection, and providing for her needs, and making a big deal out of her? May God bless the preaching of his word tonight.